Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And And we we are are the the RevRec Gals. Welcome to another episode of the RevRec Gals. We have talked about systems and all the systems that feed into the revenue engine. We've talked about the data that the revenue engine needs. And now we're going to talk about some of the configuration considerations when you're setting up your application. Natasha, let's start out talking about SSP. What are some of the challenges or issues or considerations you've had to deal with when setting up an SSP calculation within a system? I usually like to start with SSP because I think if you go through all of the information you could possibly want for SSP, then you pretty much have everything covered. And so I find a lot of times your SSP study in general is limited to what information you can get. And so if you can't get the data, you can't slice and dice it the way you want. And so that's why it's so important when configuring your system to make sure you're pulling in the right fields, the right data, and to configure them to come in a way, in a way that makes sense. When I think of SSP studies, I think of, I think we've mentioned them on previous episodes where it's like geography, region, customer type, even sort of like organization or product type. Maybe you have different entities that engage with customers in different ways. A lot of times that happens with acquisitions. And as you bring acquisitions into your systems, making sure to differentiate between them because they may have very different business models and be sold in very different ways. Those are some of the things I think of right off the bat is really just making sure that you have all the fields that you need. Yeah. And you make a good point about new products and new selling methods coming in, trying to think down the line how to set it up so that you can pretty easily add in these variables. Preferably, they aren't a new stratification of their own and they're just a different category within an existing stratification. That's a good differentiation because not all of these are going to be stratifications. There are data points. If you do need a new stratification at some point down the road, then you have that data point to refine because over time, your business model may change, your pricing model may change, and your practices can change. Whether it's a new product coming in or a new way of selling it, there might be a dimension that wasn't relevant to your SSP previously, but becomes relevant to your SSP. And a lot of times, you know, hopefully you have a proactive approach here where you're involved in that conversation up front in the planning conversation. Maybe it's going into how you're planning the commission plans with your sales organization. Maybe it's a conversation with your product development team, but hopefully you're in those conversations up front. If you're not, inevitably what's going to happen is you're going to do your SSP study and find out there was a change to pricing practices because you're not going to get the same level of compliance that you would previously if there's a big change like that. I have also seen stratifications driven by the auditors. So I had a client where they had service bundles they would sell for three and five year. And as they grew, the fact that they got an additional discount for these three and five year bundles actually generated a need for a separate stratification. 
That makes sense. And as you're speaking about auditors, they might ask for it, even though you're not going to stratify. And even though you know that it doesn't make sense to stratify, they may ask you to try stratifying or to see the data. What does this look like by country or geography? Prove to me that this isn't an SSP or a stratification that we need to pursue. Yeah, I think that's something we haven't mentioned before. A lot of this depends on your auditors and what they're looking at. And I think you sort of alluded to something too with new products, new fields. When someone sets up a new system and they put together their requirements document, put together, you know, how are we going to configure the system? We don't have a crystal ball. We don't know what's going to happen next. The ability to build in flexibility can be really helpful here. And so I have seen implementations where people will build in fields that they're not using yet and that they have sort of reserved as a field that's active, hidden away, but later down the road, if there's a new dimension that needs to be added, they can do that. That's a great idea. I see that all the time with general ledger and accounting codes, where they have the region, the country, and then blank, blank, and then the account number, and then a couple other fields that they can then use later. Exactly. Being able to sort of bring some of those open fields over into your revenue automation system isn't such a bad idea, or at least being aware of what it would take to do it down the road. You know, have the conversation with your systems team so that you have that flexibility in the future. What else have you seen as far as challenges on that side? I think some of the challenges I've seen is when you're actually getting into the SSP analysis, identifying the transactions that qualify. Are you identifying the ones that are true standalone or are you just looking at your entire population? Having to identify what goes in, what doesn't go in. Is there a type of order that's excluded? Like, do you have not for resale orders or stocking orders or internal orders or RMAs and making sure those are all filtered out? We've talked about it in our SSP episode about what to exclude and how to exclude it. I've seen companies that have $0 orders that no one seems to be bothered by until you get to SSP because those $0 orders are just provisioning orders. And so the way they provision their system, every time you provision a new instance, it generates an order, which really is not a transaction at all. And so how do you identify those and differentiate them? Because you might have some very legitimate $0 orders that need to be in the study. So how do you filter those out is very important. And it can be a lengthy task. I do find there's always a little bit of judgment with the SSP. Even though the system will generate it, what I've seen is clients will go and maybe take the data, compare it to the last few quarters to say, does this make sense? Is it in line with our expectations? And then there are those stratifications that there just aren't a lot of data points or the data points are all over the place, like training. If you're selling hardware or software or even a SaaS company, training is an incidental. So you're either selling it at a certain price or you're giving it away free. It's really hard to get that compliance. And so you have to have that bit of judgment But the system, at least, is generating the information for you to make that decision. And I think another thing you actually said is this idea of standalone versus all transactions. We used to have under 605 this best estimate of selling price, and that didn't change so much. It was relatively new under 605 before we transitioned to 606. It almost felt like the soft transition to 606 is is why they put that out there. And and a lot of those principles stay the same and that you you have to use 
the available data that's out there. So you have to use what's available to you to come up with your very best estimate. And it's not called that anymore. It's standalone selling price. So if you have standalone transactions, you need to use them. I've been in scenarios where there are standalone transactions, but there's just not enough of them. And so, you know, you might have some instances that are one or the other sold all the time standalone. And, you know, there's a plenty of standalone transactions to do a study just on standalone. Then you have other instances where you might say, this is never sold standalone. And where I see that a lot is term licenses that are bundled with the support and they're never sold separately. And then you might have an in-between where it can be sold separately, but it very rarely is. But you still have to go through the process of saying, hey, it's sold separately, but we only have six transactions that are sold separately in this period of time that we're using for our study. We don't think that's significant enough to tell us anything. So we we're going to opt in to using a greater population, which includes non-standalone sales. Similar to the time-based software, I've seen people who sell hardware and service bundles, and those are really hard to use for a data point unless you're stratifying by the bundle itself. You know, contract combinations, I think this is where these come into play because determining whether something is a standalone transaction or not, first you have to figure out, should this contract be combined with something else? Because if it should be combined with something else, then it's not standalone and you can't qualify it as standalone. And so making sure you have something that can mechanically identify those. I'm positive you've been in the same situation I have where you're dealing with spreadsheets and you're manually coming up with some sort of unique identifier. And then you're manually coming up with some sort of pivot table that tells you which contracts you need to combine or at risk or for consideration to combine because they're within a short time frame of one another. And there is no overarching contract identifier that connects the two of them. Ideally, what you would do is you'd set up your system so that you not only have a transaction identifier for each particular piece of paper that goes through the order processing system, but also a contract ID or a revenue contract ID that actually identifies and is used to combine individual transactions into one revenue contract for revenue accounting purposes. The challenge I find companies have is what are the parameters? Are you going back 30 days to say, if this customer makes two purchases, we're going to combine them? Some companies I've seen, they just say if it's within the quarter, and then they do maybe an external analysis to see if there are any large customers that have combinations that would cross the quarter. But then you have resellers, which may have an order and on the order is 10 different end users. And so then they may have a separate rule to say, hey, if this is flagged as a reseller, don't combine them because you know each is an individual sale that we're not involved with, so we don't combine them. I mean, you're touching on some really great complexities that come into play here. And unfortunately, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things to evaluate, but I think there's two main themes here. There's what does your business look like and what are your selling practices look like? Because that will dictate what truly constitutes a contract combination or not. And there's how do your auditors feel about it? Realistically, though, you if you talk to two different auditors, even within the same firm, let alone across different firms, you'll get two different answers. And it depends on their perspective, what they've seen before and how comfortable they are. Because 
I've seen companies who have taken the position that, hey, the nature of our business is that we have ongoing relationships with our customers. We're constantly upselling them. We're constantly adding on. That's the nature of the business. It's not that one negotiation is bleeding into the other the way it would for maybe a large software customized big negotiation deal, you know, where you might have one piece of paper signed and then a couple months later, another piece of paper signed, but really they were all negotiated together. And that's the spirit of what contract combinations is trying to capture is what was economically linked together within one negotiated contract. But with a, a lot of small transactions or more low-touch transactions that happen with different business models, one contract could be signed one day and then three weeks later, independently, the customer might say, actually, we did realize we think we want more or we think we want this other product. And they might not be economically linked whatsoever. But it really depends on how they interact with their customers. And then unfortunately, your auditor coming in may have experience on one end of the spectrum or the other. And so they're going to bring in with them that experience to inform how they treat your scenario. That makes sense. That's, you know, that's what they should do in a lot of ways. But depending on your business practice and your auditor and what their past experience is, it might be easier or more difficult to bring them along the ride to show them why your position makes sense. Once you have your position, how do you configure that in the system? And what kind of rules do you set up in the system? I think this goes back to this 80-20 rule. You need to come up with a system configuration that captures what's true 80 plus percent of the time. So for some people, it might be that 80% of the time, we don't link contracts. Very rarely is something actually connected. Or it could be the opposite, that 80% of the time, if it was negotiated within 30, 60, 90 days, we're going to link it. And then to your point, those rules might be different based on whether it's a reseller or not a reseller. Maybe it's different by geography. Maybe it's different by product type. And so you want to configure it in such a way that it captures 80, I mean, hopefully 90% (laughs) or more of your scenarios. But usually there's some sort of manual control in place where you then look at the population of what was within a short period of time and do a little bit of an evaluation of, is this appropriate? Are there any exceptions? Is there anything we need to do a full contract combination consideration document on? Because we might come up with a policy, but ultimately these are supposed to be assessments that are done on the contract by contract basis. Most people don't have time to do that with their volume. So you have to put parameters in place saying, hey, here's our policy. And if it falls into all these categories, here's the write-up that applies to all of these transactions. And then on an exception basis, we'll pull transactions out that do not clearly meet one or the other and do a more in-depth evaluation of them if needed. I've seen smaller companies where they actually will reach out to sales at the end of the quarter and say, are there any outstanding purchase orders related to an order that you've already booked? They could easily say, yeah, we ship the hardware. We're waiting for the PO relating, relating to the support. And so then you know to link them. Where I've seen it done is a lot of times companies will have a quarterly certification that they require their salespeople or anyone that's customer facing sometimes to complete partially as a control to make sure that there's no side letters out there and things that haven't been reported. But the other thing I see them include in there is, are there any contracts 
outstanding that we don't know about? What's still out there? And again, depending on your business model, it may have a bigger impact or not. The other complexity with contract combinations is in the contract modifications, identifying those. And then what I've seen systematically is more complicated is when do you tell the system to make a perspective versus a retrospective adjustment? And that can be very complicated. I have one client that just said everything's perspective, but when we find ones that are supposed to be retrospective, then we'll manually adjust it. The rules were hard to define, especially for the retrospective ones. Again, it's that 80-20 rule of, you know, what happens most of the time in your organization and how can you configure that in the system? And then maybe having to manually do an evaluation and find the exceptions to it. Contract modifications are its own bundle of worms. And I have seen where people have been able to do a good job of automating a lot of this. But ultimately, not everything can be automated, especially if you have really nuanced and one-off contract modifications. If you have a bunch of the same, that becomes easier. So let's move on to allocations and how the system can assist with that. One of the complexities I find is a lot of systems you define your performance obligation and how the allocations will be done based on that. So is it upfront? Is it ratable? In some cases, I've seen where they've had to have ones that are bundles that get exploded out. And so there's calculations there. The one thing I have found is less is more. If hardware is upfront and software is upfront, don't make a hardware one and a software one. Just have one that's upfront. Because then going down the line, when you have new products introduced, then you can go back and say, okay, we have this one's point in time. This one is over time. I've seen where they have embedded support that is based on a set period of time, but they may have support that they wait for registration that has a different set of rules related to it. So going through and thinking about what are all the different types of allocations and timing of revenue so you can create those performance obligation rules Along with that is the piece of saying, okay, when I have this rule or I have this type of skew, what do I do with it? Do I just recognize it based on my performance obligation rule? Or do I need to do something else like for time-based software where you need to split out the software piece and the services piece? I definitely have clients that have said, do I really have to do allocation? Because they have performance obligations that are generally recognized over the same period of time. Their position is, is everything's over time anyway. Does it really matter? And ultimately, in some of these cases, I have gotten to a place where they're not very big yet. They're still figuring out all their accounting policies. And ultimately, the performance obligations that are over a different period of time, whether they recognize them or not, are not very material. Maybe you don't have to do an allocation. That could be the case. But in most cases, you will have at least some performance obligations that are over a different period of time. I love the idea that you're proposing right now, which is that you don't need to have a million different versions of how you allocate. You really just need to break it down by the timing and the pattern of revenue because that simplifies it a lot. Because you could have five different performance obligations that are different versions of a cloud software or different versions of support all recognized over the same period of time. They're always sold over the same period of time. No need to allocate. 
it feels like one allocation, which is between the upfront or the at a point in time, or maybe even consumption-based. Maybe there's a pattern that's different, but you don't have to be as complex as going line by line. Well, they may still have it line by line, but they've removed some of the complexity in that second step of recognition. So they may have two hardwares and three services. They still allocate across the five items, but you're not complicating it by having all these different performance obligation rules that are assigned to different ones, which makes it really nice when you introduce new products. Well, hopefully there are only so many ways you can recognize revenue upfront, over time, consumption-based. It's pretty rare that you have some other timing. And I think what that highlights is the importance of a really good and well-orchestrated SKU list and coming up with those different fields on your SKU list so that going into any sort of systems implementation, you have very clearly defined every type of product, every SKU that you sell. And what is the SSP rule associated with it? What is the product type or family? And then what is the um, revenue recognition type? And maybe there's multiple ones. Maybe it can be sold in different ways. But a lot of times there's only so many options in each of those categories. So if you define them really well up front with a really strong SKU list, as new products come along, you know exactly what questions you need to ask. And you know what your choices are to choose from that are already set up and configured in your system so that when those new products come along, you can very seamlessly make them flow through your system as long as you're involved in that upfront discussion so you can define those things up front. And I find as long as you're early enough in the conversation, you get to be collaborative and say like, okay, hey guys, here's our different choices. And they're like, oh, I didn't even know we could sell it that many ways. That's great. And also, so they get far down the line and you're like, our systems can't handle that. If they get you involved early in the process, then if you need to make modifications, you've got that runway to make those little adjustments that you need. Ultimately, there's plenty to talk about in configurations. When I think about configuring a system, those are the ones that you need to think about up front with the SKU list, the SSP, how you're going to allocate and contract combinations. This concludes our episode. Stay tuned bi-weekly as we talk all things revenue recognition. You can be notified of new episodes and other information by following us on LinkedIn. Feedback and topic suggestions are always welcome through LinkedIn or by emailing us at revrecgals at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.